So if you'd like to learn more about uh, Loving Choices, there's more information at our atrium. I um, want to let you know, too, that uh, you might remember a few months ago, we did the baby bottle uh, fundraiser for them, and our church alone raised over $4,000 through that for this pregnancy center. So great job on you guys, and that's fantastic, and, and um, they're a wonderful organization. Well, we are continuing our series called Origins, which is a study through the book of Genesis. And, and I've been encouraging you and challenging you to, to read the book of Genesis on your own. And if you haven't done so yet, boy, let me just continue. Keep at it. Don't give up. Genesis is such a foundational book of the Bible. The rest of the Bible builds off of Genesis. I've also shared with you that uh, we're not going to be reading every verse together of this 50 chapters long book of the Bible. So your familiarity with Genesis. Genesis by just reading it on your own is going to be huge. I'm relying on you to, to be reading it, to build your knowledge of the book of Genesis, to be in life group. And if you're not in a life group, go ahead and pick up the study guides. We just printed off a bunch more. I just was told that we ran out, but we, we printed off more. So by the time we're done here, they'll be replenished there. All the study guides, and if you know, do that on your own or grab a buddy or a friend, go have coffee, do them together. Let's be in the Word together. Um, this is such a foundational book of the Bible, like, like, I'm, like I've been saying. It, this is a season, or this study, if you will, is like us reinforcing and building up our foundation as Bible believers, as Christ-centered Christians. So please be reading God's Word. Now, we were in chapter 1 last week, and we learned in that chapter how in six days God created everything, and the pinnacle of his creation was what? People. It was mankind. It was the, the pinnacle of his creation. Now, a number of you either emailed me or you caught me in the hallway, and, you, and many of you kind of had this same observation. You're like, hey, I've been reading Genesis, and, and either I didn't know this before or I didn't catch it before, but you were referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. A number of you pointed that out, where it says this, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And a number of you asked this question, who's the us? Did any of you else, have, any of you have that question? Who's the us talked about here? Because, you know, Joe, last week you talked about how there's, there's only one God and he created us. That's right, but, but who's the us? Well, without going into um, a lot of detail here, this is one of those, you know, trails we could chase and spend a lot of time on. But let me just say this. The us in Genesis 1:26 is like the very first mention or the very first nod towards what we would call the triune nature of our God. It's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know throughout the rest of the Bible and especially into the New Testament, this idea of the Trinity becomes clearer, uh, that Jesus was there in the beginning as well, and that our Lord has a triune way about him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what you're reading, this let us, is an acknowledgement of that trinity, and it, like I said, it becomes clear as you get deeper into the Bible. But, but, but the Lord said, let us make man in our image. And, and what that means is that Adam was different than all the rest that God had created. There, there was no other parts of creation that were made in, in God's image. I mean, all the way that the Bible describes all the rest of creation is different than Adam. If you've got your Bibles open, I hope you do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This is where I'd like for you to look at. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
So he didn't just speak Adam into existence. No, the Bible seems to say that God shaped him from the dust of the ground and and God directly breathed life into him. And we don't have a record of God creating things like that anywhere else. It's not how he created the trees. It's not how he created the vegetation or the water, you know, sea creatures or anything like that. God created Adam differently. Many people look at this part of creation and they say this. This is when God got his hands dirty. Okay, this is where God formed it. It's, um, um, it's special. It's a special creation. To be made in God's image is no little thing. Um, to be made in God's image sets us apart. But what does it mean to be made in God's image? image specifically. Well, to be made in God's image, let's look at this from several angles. Intellectually, what it means to be made in God's image is like Adam and Eve, they had the ability to reason, they had the ability to understand. Intellectually, they were totally different from the rest of God's creation. Morally, Adam and Eve, they they were good, they were sinless, well, at least in the beginning anyway. To be made in God's image means there's a reflection of God inside of each of us. And we carry in ourselves these attributes that God has. Attributes like love and wisdom and kindness and grace. There's this attribute of longing for eternity that sets us apart. These are attributes that God has that we also have because we are made in his image. And and these attributes, they set us apart from cattle or birds or whales or hummingbirds or especially hummingbirds and and anything else like that. So some of you remember that sermon for, oh, I got some stories from that sermon, let me tell you. I like how Max Lucado says it about God's image. He, He writes it this way. He says, we bear the fingerprints of the divine maker. And that's exactly true. So Adam was different. Adam was special. And so we asked this question, just how special was Adam from all the rest of the creation? Well, I can tell you how special he was. He was so special that God created a special garden just for him and Eve. That's how special he was. He created it for them. It was for their pleasure, and it was for their enjoyment. Now, look at verse 8. You got your Bibles now open, chapter 2, verse 8? Listen to this. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed... And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden uh, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we learn here is that God put Adam in the garden to rule over everything. That also is how he was set apart. He was made in God's image. He had a special role. You're gonna rule over this place. It was reserved for him. And God gave Adam just one task. And this was, this was before Eve was created. This is still on day six of creation. First day of Adam's life. His job was to name all the animals. And so whatever Adam named them, that's, that was their name. So I kind of get this impression that God, you know, Adam there is in the garden. It's his first day of his life. This is day six of creation. And, and God sends the animals in front of him one at a time. And, and Adam's like, elephant. Um, giraffe, um, Razorback, or, you know, did you hear, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know. The Razorbacks won, I think I said that already. That's nice, pretty exciting. 
we don't know, but this was Adam's job. He put it in the garden. It was for his pleasure, his enjoyment. He named all the animals. This all happened the very first day of Adam's life. And then if you look at verse 18, God makes this observation. The Lord God said what? It is not good for man to be alone. This is an observation on day six. And he says this, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place, excuse me, Lord caused him to fall asleep. And while asleep, he took one of the man's ribs, closed the place of the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She called, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So Eve was Adam's helper. And this concept of a helper is a very important one biblically. Now, I wanna, I wanna say something here that this is a part of the Bible where the fact that we live in a very secular society of America in the 21st century, there's a real struggle to read this accurately because of the lens we bring to it at times. We, we bring our 21st century mentality to this. And what's very important, as I've shared from the very beginning of this series, we need to look at this as, as biblical Christians. We need to read this from a biblical point of view and just let the Bible speak. But I want to point out something very significant here. That word helper in no way, shape, or form implies inferiority. You know, we, we put our own layers on these things, but you take that word and you really dissect it and pull out the Hebrew meaning. Nowhere does this word helper have anything to do with being inferior. God did not create Eve to be Adam's servant. That's very clear. She was equally valuable to God. She was a co-image bearer with Adam, but she had a very specific purpose. She had a role. Um, Matthew Henry is a name that you may not be familiar with. I, I would, really wouldn't expect you to. He was a, a minister and a commentary writer way back. We're talking the 1600s, so several centuries ago. He's probably best known for his six-volume uh, biblical commentary called The Exposition of the Old and New Testaments. I think it's free online, um, but it's an old commentary set. Um, he makes this observation about Eve in his writing, and, and I this is, this is something. Several hundred years ago, listen to what he writes. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. That's pretty good for being several hundred years old. Why do you think that God waited to create Eve? Did that question maybe come up while you were reading? Why didn't he just make them at the same time? Why, why would he wait? Well, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest with you, but I have some observations that we can make, and, and, and maybe here's maybe a couple reasons why God separated their creation. You know, I think, first of all, creating Adam first, um, 
Adam, I think, had the opportunity in being the first one created to discover that he had no equal in creation. Now you think about this. He's in the garden and all the animals are coming in front of him. This is day six of creation now, first day of his life. And he's naming all the animals and, and, and God made this observation. No suitable helper was found. Adam, I think, needed to discover this on his own. Uh, there is no one like me. These animals, these giraffes, these razorbacks, these hummingbirds, they're different than me. I'm different. I'm, and he, why is he different? He was made in God's image. Maybe that's why God, maybe Adam just needed to see it for himself. Maybe another reason is that maybe God wanted Adam to discover for himself what it's like to be lonely. Remember, remember God made the observation first, it is not good for man to be alone. Maybe God just wanted Adam to, so he would appreciate Eve even more to say, hey, it's not good to be alone. So there's no other helper here in, in creation because no one else has made God's image, and I'm kind of lonely because of that. I don't really know why, but God brought Eve to Adam just like he had done with all, all the animals. It was Adam himself. Adam was the one who named woman. And right here in chapter two, on the sixth day of creation, on the very first day that mankind walked the earth, God sets the stage for marriage. Right here on day one, man and woman becoming one flesh. Marriage is often talked about as the oldest um, institution in the world. It's the, it was there at the very beginning in the garden, and here is where we start seeing the fingerprints of God's original design for, for marriage. One man, one woman becoming, becoming one flesh. This is meant to be permanent. Marriage is meant to be monogamous. And we see that there at the beginning. So today, when we look at things like divorce and unfaithfulness and polygamy and homosexuality and gay marriage, those are all products of a sinful man. They're not a product of God at all. They all go against God's original design that we see being laid out in, in its foundational form in the garden. So just to kind of recap, there's a lot happening on man's first day of life. This is day six of creation. God makes Adam in his own image. He puts Adam in the garden to rule over it, to name all the animals. God makes this observation. It's not good for man to be alone. There was no suitable helper for him in the garden. And so to curve this loneliness that God saw, he created Eve. And the two of them, co-equal image bearers of God, but with very distinct roles, they came together for God's purposes in this garden. And at the end of day six, God looked at all of this he created and he said, it is very good. And indeed, it was very good. And out of all of that, God's like, I got just one rule, one stipulation. Now, look at verse 15 of chapter two. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why would God do that? Maybe as you read through chapter two and chapter three, maybe you wonder, why would God even do that? Why the one rule? I mean, when God gave Adam and Eve this perfect place to live in the garden, he also gave them something else. And it is the very same thing that God gives to each and every one of us. It's called freedom. Freedom. And instead of forcing Adam and Eve 
to, to, uh, to love him, instead of God forcing them to, to be aligned with him, instead of forcing them to have a relationship, no, 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 God gave them freedom where they could go through life on their own or they could go through life with God. Now, now you don't think about that much. We just think about this one rule and really it's, it's about freedom. God was not creating a bunch of robots here. God gave them a choice and that choice was represented in these, these trees in the garden. God set two trees in the garden. One was the tree of life and when they ate the fruit from the tree of life, they lived forever. And the other tree was the tree of knowledge of good and, and evil. Now this means something very significant to me. That means in the original creation, God's original design, he never wanted robots, he never wanted forced allegiance, he didn't want to make anybody do anything. He didn't want to force love. There's free will in the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now that was Adam's opportunity to obey God freely and, and voluntarily. It was not the tree that was meant to tempt him to do wrong. It was his opportunity to freely love and follow God. Now as you get to the end of chapter 2, it's kind of unclear how much time passes between chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. At, at the end of chapter 2, everything seems perfect and wonderful. And then when you get to chapter three, that's where we meet, you know, Satan. I don't know how much time passes between these two, but it seems like to me that not a whole lot of time passed. It seems like the progression of the text moves along fairly quickly. So Satan shows up, I think, pretty quickly after God rested on that seventh day. Everything was great, but now it's all about to change. You got your Bibles, chapter three, verse one. Let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty. Now we know the serpent is a direct reference to Satan. Then Satan was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Do you see a little slight difference here in Eve's response? It's not exactly what God said. She added a detail. She's like, yeah, we're not supposed to eat it, and we're not supposed to touch it, and God never said that. Why would Eve say that? Why would Eve add that? I don't really know, but what we do know is that God gave the command to Adam about that tree. He did not give that command to Eve. So the assumption is God told it to Adam and Adam communicated that to Eve. And if Adam's like a lot of husbands, it probably went like this. Okay, Eve, here's the rules. We're not supposed to eat from that tree. Don't even touch it. Just don't touch it. Leave it alone. <laughs> I don't know. I just know how husbands are. You know, okay, we're not supposed to eat. Don't, 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 don't touch it. And maybe, maybe Eve, as she's repeating this to the serpent, she's like, yeah, we're not supposed to eat it and, and touch it. We're not supposed to touch it. I, I, I really don't. I, I don't know. But then Satan said this in verse four, oh, you will not die, you'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree of the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
And just like that, God's vision for people ruined just like that. Gone. Satan brought the temptation for sure, but make no mistake, it was Adam and Eve who committed the sin. They disobeyed God's one and only rule, and they sinned. And the consequences of that have been devastating. Now, it's right here in Genesis 3 that we meet the supreme villain of the Bible. There's a lot of villains in the Bible, but Satan is the supreme villain. We can spend a lot of time talking about him, but essentially the Bible indicates that he once was an angel. He became a fallen angel. The Bible seems to indicate he was kicked out or cast out of, of heaven. The Bible tells us that he is the father of lies. His purpose is to, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's, that's this supreme villain in the Bible. He is responsible for all the bad in our world and all the bad that's happening in your life. It's got his fingerprints on it. And I'll tell you, as soon as Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they knew immediately something had changed I think it was probably instantaneous. The Bible says when they ate it, their eyes were open, which is just a figure of speech, meaning they became aware. They fully realized something now is different. And so the question really is, what did they specifically become aware of? Well, they made several realizations as they were chewing on that fruit that day. And the very first realization is they realized that they were naked. That's the very first thing. And not only did they realize they were naked, but they were ashamed of their nakedness. This is the very first time in the Bible that we come across this emotion of shame. And Adam and Eve were feeling it, and that led them to find some fig leaves and sew them together and make clothes and to, and to cover. They, there was some kind of idea that if we real, realize our nakedness, we realize our shame, and we are gonna cover ourselves with these leaves. And that's why every art piece of art that you see of Adam in the garden, they're wearing fig leaves. It's, it's right here. This, it was to cover over their shame. The second realization that they made as they were eating the fruit that day was this. The relationship that they had with God had all of a sudden in an instant changed. For the first time, they were now afraid of God. It's interesting. They were now afraid of him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. You got your Bibles there? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Do you realize this is the very first question that God ever asked of man in the Bible? Where are you? Now let's be honest, God knew exactly where they were. Nobody can hide from God. Have you tried? Nobody can hide from God. God did not ask this question because he needed the information at all. This is a question that's more about conviction. It's time for Adam and Eve to own up to what they had done. It's time for them to come clean. And perhaps because God raises this question, I should raise this question for us as a church family. Because where are you is exactly the same question that I think God would ask of every single one of us. Where are you today? Where are you in your relationship with God? Has it changed lately? Is it different from before? Are you on the run from God? Are you somebody right now who's hiding from God? What are you running from? Is there some kind of shame in your life that you want God to see? I think God wants me to ask you today, where are you right now? 
Well, a significant change took place with Adam and Eve. And God said, where are you? Look at verse 10, chapter 3. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Again, not a question for information, but a question for conviction. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here, how do you like that? And the woman you put here, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Do you want to know where the blame game started? It started in the garden. Adam and Eve were the very first ones to play the blame game and we have been playing it ever since, haven't we? It's not my fault. Now Adam said, the woman you put here, and that's actually a more loaded statement. Not only does he blame Eve, but he indirectly blames God. Did you catch it? It's amazing Adam lived past the day. <laughs> You're blaming me? Eve, she turned around and she blamed Satan. And it's in this blame game they come to the third realization. And that was there's gonna be some grave consequences to their sin. Consequences from their actions that have had long-lasting, devastating impact on every generation ever since Adam and Eve, all the way up to our generation. Now, let's, with the time we have left, let, let's just look quickly at some of these punishments that God handed out to, to, to Adam and Eve. Let's start with Eve, since she's pretty much the one to blame anyway. But no, I'm chum chum chum. Adam was right there with her. I'm just, it's just, just the progression of the text here. So let's look at verse 16. Let's start with Eve. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, this punishment that God handed out to Eve, there, if you think about it and dissect it, there's really three aspects to this punishment. There's a physical aspect, there's a psychological aspect, and then there's a social aspect. Three parts. So the physical one was what? What was her punishment physically? Is that when she gives birth and brings about new life into the world, it is going to have a lot of intense pain associated with it. That is a direct consequence of the fall of man. Now, um, it would be very foolish of me to stand up here and talk to you like I know what that's like, because I don't. And it would be insensitive to act like I did. But I married and I have two children. So I watched my wife go through it twice and I was in the room. And I can tell you that is some intense pain. There's a reason why God gave that to women because let's be honest, fellas, there is no way we could handle that. There is no way. And if you didn't have a deeper appreciation for your wife after she gave birth to your child, something's wrong with you, okay? But that's a consequence of sin, which leads to the second one, which is more psychological in nature. The wife will continue to be drawn to her husband. And even though her husband has the power to cause her the most intense pain of her life through impregnation, she still wants to be with him. She still wants to be intimate with him. Even though that intimacy produces the most intense pain ever. This is really interesting. It probably deserves more attention, but it does lead to the third 
consequence. It's a social one. God said this specifically, and all the translations say the same thing. He will rule over you. There is, even here in the garden, there is a clear order for the home that's being established right here at the very beginning. And this is an order that continues throughout both Old and New Testament. It becomes clearer in the New Testament when God orders the church and the family all together. But the stage of this set is, is a fallout of the fall of man. Your husband will rule over you. And what the Bible teaches us as you go through it is that God has called the man to lead his family, that he is to be the head of the house, and the wife comes under the leadership of the husband, and in that sense, he does rule over her. Now, let's be honest. A secular society will never accept this. You, you share this with your coworkers, they're going to look at you like, say what? This is not going to play well on the evening news, Okay. But I'll just say this, again, this, this whole conversation is a whole nother sermon series that would involve the book of Ephesians and other places, but let me just say this. The leadership of the husband in a marriage is not harsh and it is not unbearable when Christ reigns in that home. That's for another day. Now let's look at Adam's punishment. Look at verse 17. What, what punishment did God give Adam? To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you that you must not eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Now, like with Eve... Adam's punishment has impacted every generation as well. And, and Adam's punishment, although it's different than Eve's, it is no less severe. It is equally severe. He ate the fruit that God told him not to eat from, and now the earth is gonna be very stubborn in giving back its food. So what was very easy before, now is gonna be very hard. The earth, in a sense, is now in revolt against the man. And, and not only the earth, but the animal kingdom that Adam had grown to love and named and the relationship with the animals were different. Now the animals are actually have a different relationship with all. You know, people say the phrase, I want to be one with nature. Friends, the only time any time man was one with nature was in Genesis 3. Nobody's been one with nature ever since then. It's the whole earth is in revolt. Now Adam's punishment is twofold. The first one is this. The ground is now gonna produce thorns and thistles. That was a direct consequence of the sin. And that means, specifically, Adam is gonna have to work for his food now. The garden was easy, but now the ground will not give it up without effort. You are gonna have to work for your food. And, and, and this is gonna bring misery into Adam's life. You ask the question, why do I gotta work so stinking hard today? Thank Adam. This goes back to Genesis 3. When God said, by the sweat of your brow, that's kind of an indication that this is a continuous thing. You're going to continually work. You're going to continually sweat. You're going to have to continually work hard to provide for your family. Life now is going to come with some insane difficulties that it didn't come from before. Now you've got to labor. Now you've got to work hard just to survive. Which brings us to the second part of Adam's punishment. And the second part is crazy severe. Physical death. Physical death. Ultimately, because of what Adam did, 
the earth is going to reclaim his body one day. Can to remember that that wasn't supposed to be. This wasn't part of God's original plan. But now from dust you were created and from dust you will return, like it says in verse 19. God made it very clear. If you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. Did Adam have any concept of death back then? Probably not. But from the moment that he ate that forbidden fruit, the clock has started ticking on his life. And from the moment that you were born, the clock has been ticking on our lives. This goes back to Genesis 3. So everything changed that day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Sin entered the world that day. And it more than entered the world, I'm going to say that sin entered all of us. And I like the way one preacher puts this. He says, Adam and Eve's disobedience became an inheritance for the rest of us. Sin is like this disease that is passed from one generation to the next. And this disease doesn't skip any generations. We're all, all infected by it. It does not pass us by. We are all sinners. And the New Testament affirms this to us. Romans 3.23, what's it say? For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But even in the midst of this tragedy, this is like the, the most tragic chapter in the entire Bible. I hope you guys see this. But even in all that tragedy... Not all hope was lost, was it? Now, now, now Satan, for what he did by tempting Eve, God is gonna punish him, but in punishing Satan, God also plants the seed for the Messiah. Look at verse 15 of chapter three. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, which is a direct reference to the cross and the work of Jesus on the cross. This, you need to understand, foundationally, church, that Genesis chapter 3, right there in the Garden of Eden, is the first mention of our need for a Messiah and that one would come. And that this woman's offspring, Eve, and her offspring, it would, it would bring about Jesus. And we know from the New Testament that that's exactly what this conversation is all about, that Jesus would destroy the serpent and he would destroy all the serpent's activity. He's going to destroy things like guilt. He's going to destroy things like fear and pain and decay. And ultimately, he's going to destroy death. Jesus is going to do all of that. And it starts right here in Genesis. So Adam's sin, his singular sin, brought death to himself and death to all of us. That's the consequence. But Jesus brings new life and he brings eternal life. And that's very clear in the New Testament. I'll show you a couple places. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Pay close attention to what this says. Doctrinally so important. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It's huge. Romans 5.18, similar. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. We're talking about the fall of man and the rescue of Jesus. And it starts right here in Genesis 3. 
So that's where we first learned of him. But also, and this is a detail that's easy to pass over, and I don't want you to. We also see right here in Genesis 3, the stage is set for the kind of redemptive work that Jesus would ultimately do. Look at verse 21. This is so important. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and, and his, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Now, this is a really easy detail to just pass over. We shouldn't. In order for you to have garments of skin, God made them clothes. In order for them to have clothes made out of skin, what does that mean? It means that something had to be sacrificed. That's right. God killed an animal from that garden, an animal that Adam loved, an animal that didn't do a thing wrong, completely innocent, God killed it, shed its blood, so that Adam and Eve's shame may be covered up. Remember, their nakedness produced what? Massive shame. And so God's like, I'm going to cover up your shame by killing something innocent to do it. Like I said, that, that animal didn't do anything wrong, it was innocent, and that is the point. Something innocent had to die, bleed, for them. From this point forward, all the way till you come to Jesus, blood had to be shed to cover our shame and our guilt. And that sets the stage for Jesus as he will become the once and for all sacrifice, the, the innocent sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God who had no sin of his own, who shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see right here in the garden the redemptive work of Jesus already begins with people? And what led to Jesus on the, the cross? So when we share communion together and we eat the bread, the body of Christ, we drink the juice, which represents his blood, that is so significant because the innocent one died for us to cover over our guilt and shame from sin. Well, friends, that was a terrible day that we learned about in Genesis 3. It changed the world. Not a one of us was unaffected yet. We still have hope, and that's why we're here, right? We still have hope. Now, the final consequence for Adam and Eve um, is this, they could no longer live in the garden. And this is actually a very important detail as well. Look at verse 22, and then we're gonna wrap it up. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. You understand that the tree of life in the garden, it's gonna go away. They can't have access to it anymore. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, this is an important detail, I don't think Adam left willingly. He left kicking and screaming. God drove him out of the garden. And, he on, and, and this is what happened next. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which cherubim is an angel, and when we read about cherubim in the Bible, it's, a, it's like a warrior angel, a guardian angel. This one, not guardian like the movies, but like a guard, like a fighter angel. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So no more access to this tree whose fruit gives you everlasting life. Why couldn't they have access to it anymore? Because they were punished. 
You're going to die now because of this. Because of this. Now, when does the tree of life show back up again in the Bible? At the very end, doesn't it? The book of Revelation. And the Revelation ties in what we're learning right now in Genesis when we will once again have access to the tree of life. And you know, I heard there's a really good sermon series on Revelation on our website that somebody preached one time, if you're very interested. Okay, I did it. I'm making a joke about myself. I preached that series. But in Revelation, we're gonna eat from the tree of life again. Now, some of you have asked me, hey, whatever happened to the Garden of Eden? I mean, is it still around? Could we find it? Could we go dig it up? I don't think so. We don't know exactly what happened to the Garden of Eden, but but here's something to consider, and and we're going to end with this. Um, God placed an angel with a sword to block access to it, and I think that there it sat for hundreds of years. My personal opinion is the Garden of Eden and all of that went away by the flood. I think if, if God didn't move it before, it was gone by the flood. But maybe for hundreds of years, as man populated the earth, there was always this visual reminder of what once was and an angel. There was a, potentially, a representation of God's presence guarding the tree of life. They could see it. And we ask the question, by the time you get to Genesis 6, when God decided to destroy all mankind, the Bible says something very specific Every thought, every inclination in, 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 in a man's heart and mind was evil all the time. I mean, outside of Noah, the whole world had gone evil. And we asked the question, how could a world go so evil? How could sin so quickly infect when they could just look every day and see this guardian angel, the tree of life, and, 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 and have a physical representation of God? And how could they still turn away from that, from God's presence? Well, welcome to the United States of America. And we have representation of God, and we've got thousands of churches all over the place. And, and we're growing more wicked by the day. Where are you? That's the question God asks, and that's the question I'm going to leave with you. Where are you? Dear gracious God, I just thank you for the teaching we find in the book of Genesis. Lord, may our answer to that question be this. We are with you, God. We are in your family. We are walking with you. We are sinners who have been saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That we believe that you sent your son to die on the cross and be raised to life. And we are a part of your family. By faith we are. Lord, that's where we are. And if, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's, that's not where they are, I pray, Lord, that you will just convict them today, Lord, that you would draw them and call them unto you. Say, Lord, that you would say, come follow me. I've got a better way to do this. Come follow me and I will show you the tree of life one day where you will live forever with me in glory. Lord, that's our prayer and it's in your name we pray. Amen.